to the Podlets Podcast, a weekly show that explores cloud native one buzzword at a time. Each week, experts in the field will discuss and contrast distributed systems concepts, practices, trade offs, and lessons learned to help you on your cloud native journey. This space moves fast, and we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. If you're an engineer, operator, or technically minded decision maker, this podcast is for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Podlets podcast, where we are going to be talking about should I Kubernetes? My name is Josh Rosso, and I am very pleased to be joined by Carlicia Campos. Hi, everybody. Duffy Cooley. Hey, folks. And Brian Lyles. How? Hi. <laughs> All right, everyone. So I'm really excited about this episode because I feel like as Kubernetes has been gaining popularity over time. It's been getting its fair share of promoters and detractors. And that's fair for any piece of software, right? So I've pulled up some articles and we put them in the show notes about some of the different perspectives on both successes and perhaps failures with Kube. But before we dissect some of those, I was thinking we could open it up more generically and think about, based on our experience with Kubernetes, what are some of the most important things that we think Kubernetes solves for? All right. My list is very short. And what Kubernetes solves from my point of view is that it allows or it actually presents an interface that knows how to run software. And the best part about it is that it doesn't present a standard interface. So I can target Kubernetes rather than targeting the underlying hardware. I know certain things are going to be there. I know certain networking is going to be there. I know how to control memory. And actually, that's the only reason that I really would give, say, for Kubernetes. If you need that standardization and you don't want to set up VMs, I mean, assuming you already have a cluster, this simplifies so much. Yeah, from, from my part, I think it's lifecycle stuff. That's really the biggest driver for my use of it and for and for my particular fascination with it. I've been in roles in the past where I was responsible for ensuring that some magical meld of applications on a thousand machines would magically work. And I would have all the dependencies necessary and they would all agree on what those dependencies were and it would actually just work. And that was really hard. <laughs> and so, I mean, getting to like a known state in that situation is very difficult. And so having something where... You know, both the abstractions of containers and the, and the abstraction of container orchestration, the ability to deploy those applications and all of their dependencies together, and the ability to change that application and its dependencies using an API, that's the killer part for me. For me, from a perspective of a developer, it's very much what Duffy just said, but more so the uniformity that comes with all of those bells and whistles that we get by having that API and all of the features of Kubernetes. It's, we get such a, a uniformity across such a, a really large surface. And so if I'm going to deploy apps, if I'm going to roll out containers, what I have to do for one application is the same for another application and if I go work for another company that, that uses Kubernetes, it is the same. And if that Kubernetes is a hosted Kubernetes or if it's 
self-managed, it will be the same. I love that consistency and that uniformity that even so I can, there are many tools that help. Um, there is customized, there is help if you're installing and composing specific things for, for your needs. But the understanding of what you are doing is it's the same, right? So I can use different tools and they might look different and they will have different commands, but what I'm actually doing, it doesn't change. And my understanding of what I'm doing doesn't change. So I love that being able to do my work in the same way. I wish, you know, if that alone for me makes it worthwhile. Yeah, I think like my perspective is is pretty much the same as what you all said. And I think the one way that I kind of look at it too is Kubernetes does a better job of solving the concerns you just listed than I would probably be able to build myself or my team would be able to solve for ourselves in a lot of cases. And it, I'm not trying to say that specialization around your business case or your teams isn't appropriate at times. It's just, at least for me, to your point, Carly, see, I love that abstraction that's consistent across environments. It handles a lot of the things like Brian was saying about CPU, memory, resources, and thinking through all those different pieces. I wanted to take what we just said and maybe turn it a bit at some of the common things that people run into with Kubernetes. And, and just to maybe hit on a piece of low-hanging fruit that I think is oftentimes a really fair perspective is Kubernetes is really hard to operate. Like, sure, it gives you all the benefits we just talked about, but managing a Kubernetes cluster, that is not a trivial task. And I just wanted to kind of open that perspective up to all of us. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, the, the first thought is it doesn't have to be that way. And I think that's a, that's a fallacy that a lot of people fall into. It's hard. Well, guess what? That's fine. We're in the sixth year of Kubernetes. We're not in the sixth year of stability of a, of a stable release. It's hard to get started with Kubernetes. and what happens is we use that as an excuse to say, well, you know what? It's hard to get started with, so it's a failure. Um, you know something else that was hard to get started with whenever I started with it in the 90s? Linux. You download it and downloading it on 30 floppy disks. So there was the download corruption, real things, Z modem, X modem, Y modem. This is real. You, a lot of people don't know about this. And then you had to find 30 working floppy disks and you had to transfer 30, you know, one and a half megabyte, one megabyte, and it still took a long time to floppy disk. And then you had to run the installer. And then most likely you had to build a kernel. So downloading, transferring, installing, building a kernel. There was four places where just before you even, you didn't even have X windows. This was just to get you to a login prompt that could fail. And with Kubernetes, we had this issue. People are installing Kubernetes. There's cloud vendors who were installing it. And then there's people who are installing it on who knows what hardware. And guess what? That's hard. And it's not even now, it's not even the physical servers. It's the networking. Well, how are you going to create a network that works across all your servers? Well, you're going to use an overlay. Which one are you going to use? You can use Calico. You're going to use Weave. You're going to need something else that you created or something else that could work. Yeah, it's just, wait, we're still figuring out where we need to be. But these problems are getting solved. So this will go away. I'm living that life right now. I just got a new laptop and I'm a Linux on the desktop kind of guy. And so I'm doing it right now. It's like, what does it take to actually get a recent enough kernel that the hardware that shipped with this laptop is supported? You know, it's like those problems continue, even though Linux has been around and considered stable and is the underpinning of much of what we do on the internet today. 
we still run into these things. It's still very much a thing. I think also there is a factor of experience, for example. This is not the first time you have to deal with this problem, right, Duffy? You've not been enough. using Linux on a desktop. So this yep. is not the first hardware that you had to set up Linux on. So you know where to go to find that information. You, Yes, yeah, sort of a pain, but it's manageable. And I think a lot of us are suffering from, gosh, I've never seen Kubernetes before. Where do I even start? And Or I've learned Kubernetes, but it's quite burdensome to keep up with everything, as opposed to, let's say, if 10 years from now we are still doing Kubernetes. You'll be like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> it's, it's no big deal. So because we'll be, we'll have done these things for a few years that we will not possibly say that it's hard. I don't think we will, would describe it that way. I think that there will still be some difficulty to it. But to your point, like it's interesting. If I look back like five years ago, I was telling all of my friends, like, look, if you're a systems administrator, go learn how to do other things. Go learn how to be, go learn an API-centric model. Go play with AWS. Go play with tools like this, right? If you're a network administrator, learn how to be a systems administrator. But you got to branch out. You got to like, t- you got to figure out how to ensure that you're relevant in the coming time with all the things that are changing, right? This is true. I was telling my friends this five years ago, 10 years ago, that continues to, I, told, I continue to tell my friends that today. If I look at the Kubernetes platform, the complexity that it represents in operating it is almost tailor-made to those people who did do that, that decided to actually branch out and to understand why APIs are interesting and to understand, you know, can they have enough of an understanding in a generalist way to become a reasonable systems administrator and a network administrator and you know, start actually understanding the paradigms around distributed systems, because those people are what we need to operate this stuff right now. We're building, I mean, Kubernetes is a distributed system. And so we need people with expertise across that field, across that whole grouping of technologies. Or don't, or don't do any of that. Brian, let me follow up on that, because I think it's great that you pointed that out, Duffy. I was thinking Precisely in terms of being the generalist and understanding how Kubernetes works and being able to do most of it. But it is so true that some parts of it will always be very complex and it will require expertise. For example, security, dealing with certificates and making sure that that's working and and that's working. And if you want to, if you have particular needs for, for networking, but understanding the whole idea of distributed systems as it sits on top of Kubernetes, grasping that, I think is going, as we have years of experience under our belt, will become relatively simple. Sorry, Brian, that I cut you off. That's fine, because now you gave me something else to say in addition to what I was going to say before. So here's the killer. You don't need to know distributed systems to use Kubernetes. Not at all. You can use a deployment. You can use a stateful set. You can run a job. You can get workloads up on Kubernetes without having to understand that. But Kubernetes also gives you some good constructs either in the Kubernetes APIs itself or in its in its client libraries where you can build distributed systems in an easier way. But what I was going to say before that, though, is, oh, I can't build a cluster. Well, don't. You know what you should do? Use a cloud vendor. Use AWS. Use Google. Use Microsoft. Or no, I mean... Did I say Microsoft? Google, Microsoft. Use DigitalOcean. There's other people out there that do it as well. They can take care of all the hard things for you. In three, four minutes or 10 minutes, if you're on some certain clouds, you can have Kubernetes up and running 
And you don't even have to think about a lot of these networking concerns to get started. And I think that's a, a little bit of the FUD that we hear. Oh, it's hard to install. Well, don't install it. You install it whenever you have to manage your own data centers. And guess what? When you have to manage your own data centers and you're managing networking and storage, there's a set of op- expertise that you already have on staff. And maybe they don't want to learn a new thing. That's a personal problem. That's not really a Kubernetes problem. So we have to let's let's separate those concerns and not use our lack or our not wanting to to stop us from actually moving forward. Yeah. And maybe even taking that example a step forward, I think where this problem compounds or this perspective sometimes compounds about Kubernetes being hard to operate is coming from some shops who have the perspective of our operational concerns today aren't that complex. Why are we introducing this overhead, this thing that we maybe don't need? And, you know, to your point, Brian, I wonder if we could, we'd all entertain the idea, I'm sure we would, that, you know, maybe even speaking to the cloud vendors, maybe even just a Heroku or something, something that doesn't even concern itself with Q, but can get your workload up and running and successful as quickly as possible, especially if you're like maybe a small startup type persona, even that's adequate, right? It could have been not a failure of Kubernetes, but more so choosing the wrong tool for the job. Does that resonate with you all as well? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, you know, you can't build a house with a screwdriver. I mean, you probably could. It would hurt and it would take a long time. And that's what we're running to. What you're really feeling is that operationally, you cannot bridge the gap between running your application and running your application in Kubernetes. And I think that's fair. That's actually... That's a great thing. We proved that the, the the foundations are stable enough that now we can actually do research and figure out the best ways to run things. Because guess what? RPMs at, from Red Hat, and then you have Debs from the Debian project, different ways of getting things. You have Snap from Canonical. It works, and sometimes it doesn't. We need to actually figure out those constructs in Kubernetes. They're, they're not free. Like These things do not exist because someone says, hey, I think we should do this. It's many, many years I was using RPM in the 90s, and we need to remember that. On that front, I want to maybe point a question to you, Duffy, if you don't mind. Another big concern that I know you deal with a lot is that Kubernetes is great. Like Maybe I can get it up, no problem. But to make it a viable deployment target at my organization, there's a lot of work that goes into it to make a Kubernetes cluster production ready. Right. And that could be involving how you integrate storage and networking and security and on and on and on. And I feel like we end up at this trade off of it's so great that Kubernetes is super extensible and customizable, but there is a certain amount of work that that kind of comes with. Right. So I'm curious, Duff, what's your perspective on that? I'm going to make a point to bring back to something Brian mentioned earlier, real quick, just before I go on to that one. And the point is that I completely agree that you do not have to actually be a distributed systems person to understand how to use Kubernetes. And if that were the bar, we would have set that bar in an incredibly the inappropriate place. But from the operational perspective, that's what we're referring to. And I completely also agree that, like, especially when we think about productionalizing clusters, if you're just getting into this Kubernetes thing, it may be that you want to actually farm that out to another entity to create and productionalize those clusters, right? You have a choice to make, just like you had a choice to make when AWS came along, just like you had a choice to make. We're thinking of virtual machines, right? You had, you have a choice and you continue to have a choice about how far down that rabbit hole as an engineering team or an engineering effort your company wants to go, right? Do you want to farm everything out to the cloud? 
or, and not have to deal with the operations, the day-to-day operations of those virtual machines and take the constraints that have been defined by that platform? Or do you want to operate that stuff locally? Are you required by law to operate it locally? Like what does production ready mean to you? And like, what are the constraints that you actually have to satisfy? Right? Like, and I think that given that choice, when we think about how to productionalize Kubernetes, it comes down to exactly that same set of things, right? Like frequently productionizing, uh, I've seen a number of different takes on this and it's interesting because I think it's actually going to move on to our next topic in line here. Frequently I see that productionizing or productionalizing Kubernetes means to provide some set of constraints around the consumption of the platform such that your developers or the or the or the folks that are consuming that platform have to operate within those rails right they can only define deployments and they can only define deployments that look like this and so we're going to ask them a very subset of questions and then fill out all the rest of it for them on top of kubernetes the entry point might be cicd it might be a repository it might be a code repository very similar to heroku right the entry point could be anywhere along that thing. And I've seen a number of different enterprises explore different ways to implement that. Cool. So another concept that I, I wanted to maybe have us define and think about, because I've heard the term platform quite a bit, right? And I was thinking a little bit about you know what the term platform means exactly. And then eventually whether Kubernetes itself should be considered a platform. So backing up, maybe we could just start with a simple question. For all of us, what makes something a platform exactly? Well, a platform is something that provides something. <laughs> that is a Brian Lyles exclusive. Uh, but really what it is, is what is a platform? A platform provides some kind of service that can be used to ac- accomplish some task. And Kubernetes is a platform in that thing. It, it, it provides constructs through its API to allow you to perform tasks. But Kubernetes is not just a platform. Kubernetes is a platform for building platforms. So the things that Kubernetes provides, the workload API, the networking API, the um, configuration and storage APIs, what they provide is a facility for you to build higher level constructs that control how you want to run the code and then how you want to connect the applications. So yeah, Kubernetes is actually a platform for platforms. So wait, so just to make sure, Brian, you're saying, because Kelsey Hightower, for example, is someone who says Kubernetes is a platform of platforms. Now, is Kubernetes both a platform of platforms at the same time that it's also a platform to run apps on? It's both. And so Kelsey tweeted that there is some controversy on who said that first. It could have been Joe Beta. It could have been Kelsey. I think it was one of those two. So I want to give a shout out to both of those for thinking in the same line and and really thinking about this problem. But to go back to what you said, Carlicia, is it a platform for providing platforms and a platform? Yes. And I will explain how. So if you have Kubernetes running and what you can do is you can actually talk to the API, create a deployment. That is a platform for running a workload. But what else you also what you can do is you can create through Kubernetes API mechanisms, i.e. CRDs or custom resource definitions, you can create custom resources that I want to have something called an application. You can basically extend the Kubernetes API. So not only is Kubernetes allowing you to run your workloads, it's allowing you to specify 
extend the API, which then in turn can be run with another controller that's running on your platform that then gives you this thing when you create an application. Now it creates a deployment, which creates a replica set, which creates a pod, which download, which uh, creates containers, which downloads images from a container registry. So it actually is both. Yeah, I agreed with that. Another quote that I remember being fascinated by, which I think kind of also helps define what a platform is, is uh, Kelsey put out a quote that said, everybody wants platform as a service with the only requirement being that they build it themselves, which I think is awesome. And it also kind of speaks, in my opinion, to, to what I think the definition of a platform is, right? It's an interface through which we can define services or applications. And, and that interface typically will have some set of constraints or some set of workflows or some defined user experience on top of it. And to Brian's point, I think that Kubernetes is a platform platform because it provides you a bunch of primitives on the back end that you can use to express what that user experience might be. As we were talking earlier about, like, what does it take to actually, um, like, you might move the entry point into this platform from the API, the Kubernetes API server, back down into CI/CD. Right? Perhaps you're not actually defining a thing called a deployment. You're just saying, I want so many instances of this and I want it to be able to communicate with this other thing. Right? It becomes, so in my opinion, the definition of a, of a platform is that it's that user experience, it's that interface, it's the constraints around the thing that you're going to put on top of that platform. I like that. And I will, um, I want to throw out a disclaimer here because we're talking about platforms. Kubernetes is not a platform as a service. So that is actually, that's different. Platform as a service is, and from the way that we look at it, is basically a platform that can run your code, can, can actually make your code available to external users, can scale it up and scale it down, and manages all the nuances required for that operation to happen. Kubernetes does not do that out of the box, but you can build a platform as a service on Kubernetes. And that's actually... I think where we'll be going next is actually people stepping out of the onesie, twosie, I can deploy a workload, but let's actually work on thinking about this at this level. And I'll tell you what, that um, Deus, who got uh, bought by Azure a few years ago, they actually did that. They built a PaaS that looks like Heroku. And Microsoft and Azure thought that was a good idea, so they purchased them. And, and they're still over there thinking about great ideas. But I think as we move forward, we're, we will definitely see different types of paths on Kubernetes. And the best thing is that I don't think we'll see them in the conventional sense of what we think now. We have Heroku, which is like the Git push Heroku master. We share code through Git. And then we have um, Cloud Foundry idea of a PaaS, which is you can run CF push. And that actually is more of an extension of our old school Java applications where we could just push a wire jar or here. But I think at least I'm hoping, and this is something that I'm actually working on, not to toot my own horn too much, but actually thinking about how do we actually, can we build a platform as a service toolkit? Can I actually just build something that's tailored to my operation? And, and that's something that I think we'll see a lot more in the next 18 months. At least you'll see it from me and people that I'm influencing. One thing I wanted to mention before we move on to anything else the in answering is kubernetes right for me and uh, it's we are so biased <laughs> yeah, we need to play devil's advocate at some point but in answering that question it is the same as in uh, when we need to answer is technology x right for me and i think there is uh, at a higher level there are two camps one camp is very much of the thinking that 
I need to deliver value. I need to roll out my software. And if the tools I have are solving my problem, I don't need to use something else. I don't need to use the fancy, shiny thing that's, you know, the hype and the new thing. And that is so right. You definitely should be doing that. I'm divided on, on this way of thinking because at the same time, time that that is so right, you do have to be conscious of how much money you're spending on things. And in any way, you have to be efficient with your resources. But at the same time, when you, I think that a lot of people who don't fully understand what Kubernetes really can do. And if you are listening to this, you maybe could rewind and listen to what Brian and then Duffy were just saying in terms of workflows and the Kubernetes primitives, because those things, they are so powerful. They allow you to be so creative with what you can do, right? With your development process, with your rollout process. And maybe you you don't need it now because you're not using those things. But once you understand what it is, what it can do for your use case, you might start having ideas like, oh, that could actually make X, Y, and Z better, or I could create something else that could use these things and therefore add value to my enterprise. And I didn't even think about this before. So, you know, two ways of looking at things. Actually, so the topic of this session was, should I Kubernetes? And my answer to that is, I don't know, that's something for you to figure out. If you have to ask somebody else, I would probably say no. But on the other side, if you are looking for Great networking across a lot of servers. If you are looking for service discovery, if you are looking for a system that can restart workloads when they fail, well, now you should probably start thinking about Kubernetes because Kubernetes provides all these things out of the box. And are they easy to get started with though? Some of these things are harder. Service discovery is really easy, but some of these things are a little bit harder. But what Kubernetes does is, here comes my hip hop quote. Jay-Z said this, Basically, he's talking about difficult things, and he basically wants difficult things to take a little bit of time and impossible things or things we thought that were impossible um, to take a week. So basically, making difficult things easy and making things that you couldn't even imagine doing attainable. And I think that's what Kubernetes brings to the table. But I'll go back and say this one more time. Should you use Kubernetes? I don't know. That's a personal problem. That's something you need to answer. But if you're looking for what Kubernetes provides, yes, definitely you should use it. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I think it's a good summary there. But yeah, I also think, you know, coming back to like the whether you should Kubernetes part, from my perspective, the reason that I Kubernetes, if you will, (laughs) I love that as a verb, is that when I look around at the different projects in the infrastructure space as an operations person, one of the first things I look for is that API, that pattern around consumption. What's actually out there, and what's and what's developing that API? Is it a business that is interested in selling me a new thing, or is it an API that's being developed by people who are actually trying to solve real problems? Is there like a reasonable way to go about this? I mean, when I looked at OpenStack, OpenStack was exactly the same sort of model, right? OpenStack existed as an API to help you consume infrastructure. And I look at Kubernetes and I realize, wow, okay, well now we're developing an API that allows us to think about the lifecycle and management of applications which moves us up the stack right 
So for my part, the reason I'm in this community, the reason I'm interested in this product, the reason I'm I'm totally Kubernetesing, is because of that. I realize that like fundamentally, infrastructure has to change to be able to support the kind of load that we're seeing. So whether you should Kubernetes, is the API valuable to you? Do you see the value in that, or is there more value in continuing the whatever paradigm you're in currently? Right, and judging that equally, I think is important. Two schools of thought that I. Uh run into a lot on the API side of things is whether over time Kubernetes will become this implementation detail where 99% of users aren't even aware of the API to any extent. And then another one that kind of talks about the API is this like consistent abstraction with tons of flexibility, right? And I think companies are kind of going in both directions, like, you know, OpenShift from Red Hat's a perhaps a good example. Maybe that's one of those layer two platforms more so, Brian, that you were you were talking about, right? Where Kubernetes is the platform that was used to build it, but like the average person who interacts with it might not actually be aware of some of the Kubernetes primitives and, and things like that. So if we could all get out our crystal balls for a second here, what do y'all think in the future? Like, do you see the Kubernetes API becoming just a more prevalent industry standard? Or do you see it kind of fading away in favor of some other abstraction that makes it easier? Oh, wow. Well, I already see it as I don't have to look too far in the future. I already see the Kubernetes API being used in ways that we could not imagine. The idea that I will think of is like Kubevert. Kubevert allows you to boot basically pods on whatever implements that it looks like a kubelet. So it looks like something that can run pods. But the neat thing is that you can use something like Kubevert, make a virtual kubelet, and now you can boot them on other things. So ideas in that space. I don't know. VMware is actually going down that. Wow, what if we can make virtual machines look like pods inside of Kubernetes? Pretty neat. Azure has definitely, they love the work on this. Is Now we can just bring up, either bring up containers or we can bring up VMs. And you don't actually need a cube server anymore now. But the crazy part is that you can still use the workloads APIs and the storage APIs with Kubernetes, and it does not matter what backs it. And I'll throw out one more suggestion. So there's also projects like AWS operators and Crossplane. And what they allow you to do is to use the Kubernetes API, or actually in cluster API, I'll use all three. They use the Kubernetes API to boot things that aren't even in the cluster. And this will be AWS services, or this could be databases across multiple clouds, or guess what? More Kubernetes servers. Yeah, so we're on that path, and but I, I just can't wait to see what people are going to do with that. The power of Kubernetes is this API. It's just so amazing. For my part, I think it's a, I agree that the, the API itself is being extended in all kinds of amazing ways. But I think that as I look in the crystal ball, I think that the API will continue to be foundational to what's happening. If I look at the, the level two or level three platforms that are coming, I, th I think that those will continue to be a thing for enterprises, that they'll continue to innovate in that space, and that they'll continue to consume the underlying API structure and that portability uh, Kubernetes ex exposes to define what that platform might look like for their own purpose, right? Giving them the ability to effectively have a platform as a service that they define themselves, right? But using and under, you know, using a foundational layer that is like consistent and extensible and extensive. I think that that's where things are headed. And also more visual tools, I think, is in our future. More better actual visual UIs that people can use. I think that's going. That's definitely 
going to be in our future. So can I talk about that for a second? Please, Brian. I'm wearing my Octant hoodie today, which is a visual tool for Kubernetes. And I will talk now as, a, as someone who has gone down this path to actually figure this problem out. As a prediction for the future, I think we'll start creating better APIs in Kubernetes to allow for more visual things. And the reason I say that this is going to happen and it can't really happen now is because for inside of Octant and whenever we're creating UI views, pretty much have to know what that object is. But what's going to happen, and I see I see the rumblings from the community, I see the rumblings from the Knative community as well, is that we're going to start standardizing on conditions and using conditions as a way that we can actually say what's going on. So um, let me back it us up for a second so I can explain to people what conditions are. So Kubernetes, um, we think of Kubernetes as YAML. And in a typical object in Kubernetes, you're going to have your type metadata. What is this? You're going to have your object metadata. Um, what's the name of this? And then you're going to have a spec. How is this thing configured? And then you're going to have a status. And the status generally will say, well, what's the status of this object? Is it a deployment? How many replicas are up? If it's a pod, am I ready to go? But there's also this concept in status called conditions, which are a list of things that say how your thing, how your object is working. And right now, Kubernetes uses them in two ways. They use them in the negative way and the positive way. I think we're actually going to figure out which one we want to use, and we're going to see more APIs just say conditions. And now, from a, a UI developer, from my point of view, now I can just say, I don't really care what your object is. You're going to give me conditions in a format that I know, and I can just basically report on those and the status, and I can tell you if your thing is working or not. That's going to come too, and that'll be neat. Because that means that we get basically, we can start building UIs for free because we just have to learn the pattern. Can you talk a, bit, a little bit more about conditions? Because this is not something I hear frequently and I might know, but not know what you're talking about by this name. Oh, yeah. I'll give you the most popular one. So everything in Kubernetes is an object. And that even means that the nodes that your workloads run on are objects. If you run kube control, kube cuddle, kube whatever, get nodes, it'll show you all the nodes in your cluster if you have permission to see that. And if you do kube ctl, get node, node name, and then you actually have the YAML output, what you'll see at the bottom is an object called conditions. And inside of there, it'll be something like, is there sufficient memory? Is the node, I actually don't remember all of them, but really what it is, there are line items that say how this particular object is working. So do I have enough memory? Do I have enough storage? Am I out of actual pods that can be launched on me? And what conditions are, it's basically saying, hey, Brian, what's the weather outside? I could say it's nice, or I could be like, well, it's 75 degrees. The wind is light, but variable. It's not humid. And these are what the conditions are. They allow the object to specify things about itself that would might be useful to someone who is consuming it. All right, that was useful. I'm actually trying to bring one up here. I never paid attention to that. Yeah, and, the, and you'll see it. So the, the two ones that are most common right now, and there's, still, there's some conversation going on in Kubernetes architecture, trying to figure out how they're going to standardize on this. But with pods and nodes, you'll see conditions in there. And, and those are just telling you what's going on. But the problem is, is that a condition is a type, a message, a status, and something else. But the problem is, is that the status can be true or false. Oh, and a reason. The status can be true or false, but sometimes 
the type is a negative type where it'll be like node not ready. And then it'll say false because it is. And now whenever you're inspecting that with automated code, you really want the positive condition to be true and the negative condition to be false. And this is something that the KDK native community is really working on now. They have the whole facility of this thing called duct typing, which they can actually now pattern match inside of objects to find all these neat things. It's actually pretty intriguing. All right. So it's interesting because I, I very much status is everything for objects. And that's very much part of my workflow. But I never noticed that there was, you know, some of the objects had conditions. I never noticed that. And just a plug, we're very much going to have the key native folks here to talk about duct typing. I'm really excited about that. Yeah, they're on my team. They'll be happy to come. Oh, I yes, they're awesome. So I was thinking maybe we could wrap this conversation up and... I think we've acknowledged that should I Kubernetes is a ridiculously hard question for us to answer for you, and we should clearly not be the ones answering it for you. But I was wondering if we could kind of give some thoughts around the, you know, for the Podlet listener who's sitting at their desk right now thinking like, is now the right time for my organization to to kind of bring this in? And I'll start with some thought and then open it all up to you. So one common thing I think that I run into a lot is, you know, your current state and you know, your desired state, right? To steal a Kubernetes concept for a moment. And the desired state might be more decoupled services that are more scalable and so on. And I think oftentimes at orgs, we get a little bit too obsessed with the desired state that we forget about how far the gap is between the current state and the desired state. So as an example, you know, maybe your shop's biggest issue is the primary revenue generating application is a massive .NET framework monolith, which isn't exactly that easy to just port over into Kubernetes, right? So if a lot of your friction right now is teams collaborating on this tool, updating this tool, scaling this tool, maybe before even thinking about Kubernetes, being honest with the fact that a lot of value could be derived right now from some amount of application architecture changes, or even, sorry to use a buzzword, but some amount of modernization of aspects of that application before you even get to the part of introducing Kubernetes. So that's one common one that I run into with orgs. What are some other kind of suggestions you have for people who are thinking about, is it the right time to introduce Cube? So here's my, here's my thought. If you work for a small startup and you're working on shipping value and you have no Kubernetes experience on staff and you don't want to use, for some reason, you don't want to use the cloud, you know, go figure out your other problems and come back. But if you're an enterprise and especially if you work in a central enterprise group and you're thinking about modernization, air quotes, I actually do suggest that you look at Kubernetes. And, and here's the reason why. My guess is that if you're of a business of a certain size, you run VMware in your data center. I'm just guessing that because I haven't been to a company that doesn't. Because we learned a long time ago that using virtual machines, in many cases, is way more efficient than just running hardware. Because what happens is we can't use all our compute capacity. So if you're working for a big company, or even like a medium-sized company. I don't think, I'm not telling you to run for it, but I'm telling you to at least have someone go look at it and investigate if this could ultimately be something that could make your stack easier to run. I think I'm going to take the kind of the operations perspective. I think if you're in the in the business of coming up with a way to deploy applications on the servers and you're looking at trying to handle the life cycle of that and you're pretty fed up with the tooling that's out there, things like Puppet and Chef and 
and tooling like that. And you're looking to try and understand, is there something in Kubernetes for me? Is there some model that could help me improve the way that I actually handle a lifecycle of those applications, be they databases or monoliths or, you know, composable services, any which way you want to look at it. Like, are there tools there that can be expressed? I mean, are there, is the API expressive enough to help me um, solve some of those problems? My opinion, the answer is yes. I look at things like daemon sets. I look at things like scheduling predicates that are exposed by Kubernetes. And there's actually quite a lot of power there, quite a lot of capability in just the traditional model of how do I get this set of applications onto that set of servers or some subset therein. So I think it's worth evaluating if that's the place you're in as an organization. If you're if you're looking at fleets of equipment and trying to handle that magical recipe of multiple applications and dependencies and stuff, see what the water's like on this side. It's not so bad. Yes, I don't I don't think there is a way to answer this question. It's Kubernetes for me, without actually trying it, giving it a try yourself, like really running something of maybe low risk. We can read blog posts to the end of the world. <laughs> but until you actually do it and explore the boundaries is what I would say. Try to f- learn what else can you do that maybe you don't even need, but maybe might become useful once you know you, you can use. Yeah, and another thing is maybe if you are a shop that has one or two apps and you don't need full-blown everything that Kubernetes has to offer and there is a much more scaled-down tool that will help you deploy and run your apps, that's fine. But if you have more certain number, I don't know what the number would be, but multiple apps and multiple services, just think about having that uniformity across everything. Because, for example, I've worked in shops where the QA machines were taken care of by a group of DevOps people. And the production machines, oh my God, they were taken care of by other groups, not different group of people. And the tools that each of these groups used were different. And I, as a developer, I had to know everything, <laughs> you know, how to deploy here, how to deploy there. And I had to have my little notes recipes because whenever I did it, first of all, I wasn't doing that multiple times a day. I had to read through the notes to know how, what to do. I mean, just imagine if it was one platform that I was deploying to with the CLI commands that are fairly easy to use, like Kubernetes has, gives us with kubectl. You know, you, you have to think outside the box. Think about these other operations that you have that people in your company are going to have to do. How easy is it going to be to, in the future hire someone who knows your stack because your stack is the same that people in your industry are also using? I think about all of these things, not just... I think people have to take across the entire set of problems. So I, I wanted to mention one more thing. And this is, a, you know, we're producing lots of content here with the Podlets and other and with our coworkers. So I want to actually give a shout out to the TGIK. We want to know what you can do in Kubernetes. And you want to have your imagination expands it a little bit. Every Friday, we make a new video. And actually, funny enough, three-fourths of the people on this call have actually done this where on Friday we pick a topic and we go in and it might be something that'd be interesting to you or it might not. And we're all over the place. We're not just on applications, but we're applications, low level, applications running on Kubernetes, new things that just came out. We've been doing this for 101 episodes now. 
wow. So you can go look at that if you need some examples of what things you can do on Kubernetes. I am so glad tjik.io. Maybe somebody, uh, an English speaker should repeat that because of my accent. But I just let me just say, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Brian, because I was sitting here as we're talking and thinking, there should be a catalog of use cases of what Kubernetes can do, not just like the rice and beans, but like a lot of different use cases, maybe things that are unique that people don't think about uh, to use because they haven't run into that need yet, but they could use it as, as a plus. Okay, oh, that would be enable me to do this thing that I didn't even think about. That is such a great <laughs> catalog of use cases. It's one of, uh, probably the best resource. Uh, somebody say uh, the website again, Duffy, what is it? TGIK.io. And it's every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. And it's live. It's live and it's recorded. So it's uploaded to the VMware Cloud Native YouTube. And everything is going to be on the show notes too. It's neat. You can come ask us questions. There's a, a live chat inside of that venue. It's a, a live chat. You can ask us questions. We can You can give us ideas, all kinds of crazy things, just like you can with the Podlets. If you have an idea for an episode or something that you want us to cover, or if you have you know something that you're interested in, you can go to the podlets.io. That'll link you to our GitHub pages where you can actually open an issue about things you'd love to hear more about. Awesome. And then maybe on that note, Podlets, is there anything else you all would like to add on Should I Kubernetes? Or do you think we've... <laughs> as best as best our bias will allow, I would say. <laughs> as best we can. We could go another hour. <laughs> it's true. It's maybe true. we'll have Should I Kubernetes part two. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everyone. Well, that wraps it up for at least part one of Should I Kubernetes. <laughs> um, and we appreciate you listening. Thanks so much. Be sure to check out the show notes, as Duffy mentioned, for some of the articles we read preparing for this episode and TGIK links and all that good stuff. So again, I'm Josh Rosso signing out with us also Carlicia Campos. Bye, everybody. It was great to be here. Duffy Cooley. Thanks, y'all. And Brian Lyles. Till next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Podlets Cloud Native Podcast. Find us on Twitter at the Podlets and on the podlets.io website. That is the Podlets all together where you'll find transcripts and show notes. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned by subscribing. Oh,